And if you have a Bible with you this morning, I'd invite you to open it to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're looking at a little prayer that Paul prayed for the believers in the church in Thessalonica. That's verses 16 and 17, preceded by a preamble, which actually just pops with rich theology. And this has framed our series for the rest of the summer, From Eternity to Eternity, How God Claims and keeps you. So we're going to be looking at specific ways God loves you from all eternity. And these, these ways have specific words. He elected you. He called you. He justified you. He will glorify you. And this is what we're going to look at. And this morning we're going to look at the first word in the little series, and that is this doctrine of election. Let me read the text for us, and then we'll jump right in. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits, or from the beginning, to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by a letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. You're probably dying to know the answer to this question. How does pickup basketball work? Well, for uh, 40 or more years, I've played pickup basketball in the sandlot, and here's basically how it works. Ten people show up on a basketball court. They shoot around, they warm up, and it's time to play. So two people are chosen as captains. Marty's captain, David's captain. And what do they do? They pick teams usually starting with the best players, and the last players chosen are the worst players. Why? Everybody wants to win. (laughs) Pick up basketball 101. What happens when God chooses teams? God chooses not based on your ability, but lack of it. When God chooses teams, he chooses losers the inept, the unlovely, the unable. God befriends wretched people. The Bible calls that choice election. When God chooses to love the unlovely, the unlovable, it gets a word, election. He brings on his team people who otherwise have no interest in him at all. So if you find yourself to be sitting in your seat this morning with honestly, virtually no interest in God, 
this is your doctrine. Really and truly, this is for you. For the apostle, did you notice in the text, it is a cause of thanksgiving. Verse 13, we should always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. That means they were elect. They're beloved. When God chooses you, he sets his love upon you. He makes you the object of his love. This is what moves the heart of God. In love, he chooses losers, the unlovely, wretched. Paul says, because God chose you from the beginning to be saved. Paul is in awe of the people of Thessalonica, not because they're anything special, but because God has chosen to make them his precious beloved people. And notice how this is about comfort. Verse 16, he loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope by grace. So that when God calls you his beloved and he wraps you in his grace, it is that your heart would be filled with comfort and hope. Because Really? If my salvation depended on me for its initiative, it could certainly depend on me for its demise. If it was ultimately up to me to make the first move towards God, some evangelists have put it this way in the past, God's hands are tied, it's up to you, and I'm the one ultimately responsible to get enough faith to save in Jesus, why couldn't I be the one that would lose that faith in the end? There's no comfort in that. So whatever happens this morning in your thinking about God and your own salvation, beloved, if there's not comfort by grace and good hope, then I have failed you. What we're going to do for two weeks is look at what the doctrine of election is not this morning, and next week, what it is. So obviously, I'm not going to say everything there is possible to say about it in this sermon. So first of all, what it's not. Don't be troubled by me starting negatively. The philosophers have said the way you affirm what is true is by the via negativa, by showing what something is not. You establish what is true. So we're going to look at what doc what the doctrine is not, and I have to do that because in my own experience as a Christian and a pastor, I have found that this teaching is misunderstood and by some vigorously disliked. To me, that's sad. This doctrine has been a source of great sweetness to my soul and comfort when I wonder, am I really a Christian I go to this doctrine to get comfort for my soul. There is, sadly, a common misconception about this teaching, and it basically goes like this. Maybe you believe this. God's an ogre, and there are people out there who want to be saved. Please save me. And God is saying, no, I haven't elected you. Stay away. Get out. That's a common misperception of this doctrine. Nothing could be farther from the truth. God elects people because he wants them, because he loves them, because he wants to enjoy them forever. It's also important to see that the doctrine does not come to us for some 
philosophical speculation. I've talked to countless people in, in the coffee shop about this doctrine. They have lots of questions about it, which is great. They tease out the implications of it. Invariably, it's, well, what about Uncle Joe? How do I know he's elect? And the doctrine does not come to us in the Bible for that kind of speculation. It comes for comfort. Who's it being written to? Thessalonians. What's happening to them? Persecution. Life's tough. Sooner or later, Christians begin to wonder, am I going to make it to the end? Will I persevere? Will God preserve me? And the point is, wow, if God started this thing, actually having you in mind as the optic of his love from all eternity, if God started it, my comfort is what? God will finish it. God finishes what he starts. It is a matter of comfort and assurance, not philosophical speculation. So here we go. I'm going to tease out five things that this doctrine is not. Number one, it's not a teaching designed to keep you from God. Whatever it is, it can't be that in light of assurances in the Bible that God wants a relationship with you. Did everyone in the room hear that? No matter where you are as a person, I can stand on the authority of God's word and tell you God wants a relationship with you. For goodness sakes, he created you. Why wouldn't he want a relationship with you? So I'm going to read four verses which constitute sincere invitations from God himself that you would enter into a saving relationship with him. Jesus speaking in Matthew 28, Come unto me, all you who labor and are weary, heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Are you laboring under the guilt and condemnation of your sin? Are you weary from trying to make yourself good enough for a holy God? Jesus says, come to me. I am rest from that. I am salvation. I'm your Savior. Come to me. He means it, beloved. This is for everyone in the room and everyone in the universe. Come to me. Echoed in John 7, if anyone is thirsty... Let him come to me and drink. Are you in anyone? Yes. Are you thirsty? Then come to Jesus and drink. And one of the most famous verses in America anyway is John 3.16. God gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Are you a whoever? Everyone in this room is a whoever. If you believe in Christ, here is a promise, he will save you. Romans 10, 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Are you a whoever? Call on his name with the assurance that because he promises you will be saved. You will be saved. Not you might be saved. You will be saved. Call on the name of the Lord. Beloved, these are bold, clear, simple, and irrevocable promises. I am assuming Jesus wants to save you. And it's interesting, when you look at the preaching of the New Testament, when the apostles preached, they didn't preach election. They preached the good news of the gospel. Think of back, way back to the beginning of our series in 1 Thessalonians. We looked at Acts 17 when the church was planted. How did Paul preach? He showed up in Thessalonica and said, are you elect or are you not elect? You know, who's elect around here? No. 
It says, he went in, as was his custom, and on free Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Jesus lived and died for you. Take him. And a lot of them did. They responded to the free offer of the gospel. Paul preached that there's only one hope of reconciliation with God. There's only one man in all of history who said, I can make you perfect enough for the holy presence of God. I can remove all your sins into my sinless body. Only one man ever made that promise, Jesus Christ. And he promises it to whosoever. Then it's interesting in the book of Acts that you have some comments once in a while from observers that as people are getting saved, they, uh, they, they reflect on it from a divine point of view, from the point of view of what God is doing. For example, Acts 13, 48. All who were appointed to eternal life believed. How many believed? All who were appointed. By whom? God. So it's just one way of saying as the gospel's being shared and people are being saved, they're going, oh, obviously from all eternity, God determined they would be saved. He determined they would get the gospel. And when they got the gospel, they said, all who were were appointed, appointed by God, they're being saved. Of course they are, because God is saving them through the power of his word. Here's another one, Acts 11, 18. Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. The undercurrent here is the first Christians who were Jews were very suspicious of the Gentiles. They weren't even sure they wanted Gentiles being saved. The gospel goes to the Gentiles. Gentiles start believing. And what's their conclusion? God is saving the Gentiles by granting them the gift of repentance unto life. They only have it because God gave it to them. But there's, there's a comment on what's happening on earth from a divine point of view. God's granting repentance to the Gentiles, and that's why they're being saved. Secondly, why am I so excited about this? There's a lot of energy here. I'm supposed to be... Supposed to be... Sorry, this is kind of who I am. Secondly, this doctrine... I simply don't want to put you off if you don't believe this doctrine. I want this to be warm and winsome. That's my prayer. Secondly, the doctrine is not answering the question, how do you become a Christian? It's answering a different question. Why did I become a Christian? And and that's a question people who become followers of Jesus eventually ask. Why did I become a Christian? So I wanted to find three terms that often come into the bailiwick of this doctrine, and that is the, the term election, the term gospel, and the term evangelism. I want to look at those three things, because they're each of them answering three different questions. For example, the doctrine of election, sometimes called sovereign grace, sometimes called predestination, is essentially answering the question, How do people who are spiritually dead, the Bible says we're all born into this life, spiritually dead, no eyes to hear him, sorry, no eyes to see God, no ears to hear him, no will to move towards God. We have as much appetite for God in our natural state as a dead man has appetite for food. And I'll unpack this next week for you. 
But the doctrine of election says spiritually dead people who have no inclination to move towards God, in fact, we have an internal, although perhaps unknown subconsciously, aversion to God. How do they get an interest in God? God gives them the desire. So you could actually just call the doctrine of election the doctor, the doctrine of a God-given desire for salvation. So the doctrine of election answers what question? Why did I become a Christian? The answer? He gave you the desire because it didn't reside in you naturally. That's why you're a Christian. That's why I'm a Christian. I owe it all to God. God gave me the desire. He created a desire where it did not exist. That's why Jesus said, unless, well, I'm getting into next week's sermon, so I'll just stop on that one. Doctrine of election. Why am I a Christian? God gave me the desire. Secondly, what's the doctrine of the gospel? The gospel is answering what question? Is there really good news for sinners in this world? It answers the question, how do I become a Christian? How do you become a Christian? You believe the promise that Jesus Christ will forgive you of your sins and raise you from the dead and clothe you in his righteousness. You believe that whatever Jesus did counts for you because Jesus promises that. The gospel is a promise God makes that when you take his son, you're in the same status as his son, an accepted, beloved son of God. How do you become a Christian? Take Jesus. You believe the promise. It's not the same Christian as why. The question is, why did you become a Christian? Why did you become a Christian? Answer, God gave me the desire. How do you become a Christian? Ask God for the desire. <laughs> Call on the name of Jesus and you will be saved. And the third word is evangelism. And evangelism is simply announcing this message of grace that's promised in Jesus. And evangelism would include two things. Number one, living in such a way that you make Jesus' love for sinners visible in word and deed. You're the only advertisement many people you know will ever see of what Jesus is like. You are. So you're living in such a way as to make visible the love of God for sinners, his love for you, visible in word and deed. Secondly, it's explaining to people the otherwise counterintuitive truths of the Christian gospel in a way that is accessible and intelligible for them. That's evangelism, explaining Jesus to people who have no interest in Jesus. Evangelism answers what question? Who can become a Christian? Answer, whosoever, anybody in the world. Now, this church has believed that for 100 years. For 100 years, we believe that the nations belong to Jesus, that the Lord Jesus Christ is worthy of the worship of all the nations, and we have for 100 years sent people out to do evangelism, to plant churches, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the nations. We take that seriously. Can I put it this way? God ordains the end as well as the means. If the end is the F, salvation of God's elect, what is the means, beloved? Preaching the gospel. So when we preach the gospel, we preach the gospel to what end? God is saving his people. You're not asked to speculate about who they are. All we're called to do is preach the gospel and ask God to save them. The elect will begin to appear because they'll begin to believe the gospel. See what this doctrine is not. It's not a doctrine that makes God unfair. Does God give everybody a chance, as it were, to be saved? Everybody get a chance? 
Well, we know God is just. We know God will never condemn someone for information they're supposed to have that they never had, right? God's never going to do that. Everyone, Paul tells us in Romans 1 and 2, has their chance. God is witnessing to them through creation and conscience that he is God. That they don't respond to that is not God's fault. It's their fault. Everyone has a chance. I'm not going to get into the question of babies and everything, but for our purposes, Paul writes, everyone is at liberty to respond to God. They're commanded to. Through the witness of creation and conscience, God's hindering no one from responding to him. And then Paul begins to reason for us that when God chooses to show mercy to some, he has not created an injustice that he does not show mercy to all. Incidentally, would you like God to show mercy to you? Ask him and he will. I say that on the authority of the promises of God's word, whosoever. Let me put it this way. Suppose you go to the mall at Christmas time. And you see hundreds of people walking through the mall. For whatever reason, your heart is moved with compassion, and you pull out $20 and you give it to this person that you see. Here, enjoy your Christmas shopping. Here's $20. That was, strictly speaking, an act of what? Mercy. They, they didn't deserve that. You just showed undeserved favor to a person. There's no reason in them for you to give them $20. You just give it because you have a heart of love. You have not created any injustice to the thousand other people at the mall because, strictly speaking, you didn't owe them any money. That you, in love, chose to give freely to someone in mercy, $20, is mercy to them, no injustice to anyone else. Do you want God to show you mercy? How can you be sure he'll show you mercy? Romans 10, 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I don't want anyone leaving this room today thinking, I could never become a Christian if, if I'm not elect. That's not the conclusion. The conclusion is, call on the name of Jesus, he will save you. When you believe in him, you'll realize, I'm the elect. Let me just show you a few more verses in Romans 9. I can't do justice to the whole context. Basically, Paul begins the chapter by saying, I wish I could go to hell if my Jewish brothers would be saved. They're, they're not coming to the gospel, and it breaks his heart. And he says, I wish I was a curse so they could be saved. That's the context. For, and he deals with the question, is God unfair to save some and not others? And here's what he writes. What shall we say then, Romans 9, 14? Is there, is there injustice on God's part? That's what people are thinking. How can he save Bashir but not so-and-so in his neighborhood who's not a Christian? That's the question. By no means. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it, those who are saved by the grace of God, it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now, on the strength of that verse alone, I could never be anything but a believer in the doctrine of election. I just couldn't believe any other doctrine because of how clear and simple that seems to me. It doesn't depend on man. It's all on God's choice. Do you want him to choose you? You want mercy? What should you do? Call on his name with certainty he will save you. And I mean it because God means it. 
The scripture says to Pharaoh, this reason I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed on all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills and hardens whom he wills. Pharaoh was a person who God's, he hardened his heart. He allowed the full extent in Pharaoh's sin in Pharaoh's heart to be expressed. If at any point in the process, if Pharaoh called out to God for mercy, would God have saved him? Absolutely. Whose fault is it Pharaoh hates God? God's fault or Pharaoh's fault? It's Pharaoh's fault. He's responsible for his sin. If at the edge of the Red Sea he said, have mercy on me, save me, God, in fact, indeed, would have saved him. Fourth, this is not merely passive foreknowledge. Now, this came out in the confession earlier. I don't know if you caught it, but I want to explain this to you. There's a very common view in Christianity, probably the majority view in churches in America, that when Bible scholars come to the words election, chosen, and predestination, here's how they explain it. They don't explain it the way I'm explaining it. They say this. Well, there's another word, and that's foreknowledge, and here's how it works. God knows ahead of time in his divine foreknowledge that you are, of your own free will, going to choose Christ and believe the gospel, and on the strength of God, knowing that, he elects you, he chooses you, he predestines you. Have you heard that view? Maybe you believe it. I need to call it wrong. In this view, God is a spectator, kind of sitting in the stands, watching history, knowing Mike Sheridan, 1970-whatever, is going to choose Jesus to be saved. He knows that ahead of time. Of course, did Jesus know that ahead of time? Of course. And this view says on the strength of knowing that, that he then elects, predestines, and chooses me. Here's why that's wrong. Number one, I've already showed you, and I will show you next week too, I don't have it in me. I have no desire in me to choose of my own accord to desire God. It isn't there. All God knows ahead of time is I will persist in rebellion against him until he moves in to stop that. Secondly, foreknowledge is personal. God just doesn't know facts. He knew you. Look at Romans 8, 29 to 30. For whom he foreknew. Paul is saying he knew you, not just facts about you. God isn't a spectator. He is the prime mover. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Those whom he predestined, he called. We'll see that sermon in two weeks. Whom he called, he justified in three weeks. Whom he justified, glorified in five weeks after sanctification. Do you see the point? God is no spectator. He's doing this. (laughs) You're the spectator, as it were. That's a little inaccurate because you need to respond to the call of the gospel. And the last point, and I'm sure there's more things we could say. This is not a mystery. I've often heard people say over the years, oh, let's not get embroiled in this controversial doctrine of predestination election. It's a mystery. And my response is, people create controversies, not doctrines. Is there mystery in this doctrine? 
Yes, I'll tell you in a second. It is not a mystery that the Bible teaches this. I hope you believe that by now. There's nothing mysterious about the fact that God chooses us for salvation. He predestines us unto life. He elects us. That isn't mysterious. What's mysterious on the one hand is, why not everybody? I often get that question. Why doesn't he choose everybody? And why did he choose me? Or really, why does God choose anyone? That's mysterious. However, the bigger mystery is this. In eternity past, God chose teams. And he said, I need a winner. I need a man who will succeed where Adam failed. I need a winner. And he looked at his eternal beloved son and he said, son, will you go and win salvation for your and my people? The mystery is the mystery of the cross that Jesus said, not, I'll get drafted onto an NFL team in hopes of winning a Super Bowl, but I'm going to get drafted to go to earth to die a hideous agony of death on the cross for his enemies. That's the mystery. Why would Jesus give up himself for us? It's the depth and the wonder of the love of God. Who can fathom it? Jesus took on the cross. He loved his enemies by dying for them. I don't think we ever get tired of trying to wrap our hearts and minds around that. Now, last little question. How do you know you believe that? How do you know you're really living there? How do you know? You're in a relationship with God because you heard the call to, be, to belong to Jesus. Let me just tease out a couple of things very briefly. Number one, are you going to be more humble who, can, who in the room can say, I'm a Christian because I'm a smarter person? Who in the room can say, I'm a Christian because I, I got the ability to believe? Who in the, Christian, who in the room can say, I'm a Christian because I'm, I'm responsible for this? None of us. No one is going to boast at the throne of God. There's no mouths open to the throne of God saying, I belong to be here. It is all of God, all by grace, sheer mercy, the cost of Jesus' death on the cross. So, don't be so sure you're right about everything. Be humble. And when you're sure you're right, get gallons of gentleness to pour over your heart and mind. Should this doctrine, secondly, not fill us with praises? Praises, praises, unending thanksgiving to God. Thirdly, Get election eyes. You see people in a new way. You know, you see everybody else's warts and pimples and foibles and the way they sin and the things they give you to dislike them. You know what they are? They're just a microcosm of what you can be in God's sight. He's probably got more on you than you have on them. This doctrine tells you that. Humble, gentle, and finally, there is truly, from this doctrine understood, a desire for other people to know. This doesn't kill evangelism. This, simply, this doctrine simply guarantees that evangelism is going to be effective. This is the means God uses to the end of calling his people to himself. Remember back in 1 Thessalonians 1, this church, it's the most evangelistically vital and active church in the New Testament. They're heralding the word of God. 
And in, in chapter one, he thanks God that they're chosen by God. This, this doctrine doesn't quell evangelism, it prompts it, rightly understood. So let's ask ourselves, do we do care about personal evangelism? Maybe there's some fault in our theology. All right, next week, we'll look at what this doctrine is. If I've misspoken, or you'd like to know more, or something I've said is offensive, let's talk. Let's pray. We are so grateful, Lord Jesus, for the free, bona fide, sincere, clear offer of salvation from your mouth to whosoever, to all sinners. Come to me and find rest. If you're thirsty, come to me. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the day to be saved. So save us by your spirit. Give us the desire and encourage us profoundly if we know we have that desire by humbling us and filling us with praise, other-centeredness, glory, prayerful hearts, and hearts that long to see others call on his name with us. In Jesus' name.